title, but it's what the text is all about. But before we get into the text, let's just pray one more time. And ask the Lord to bless the word on our hearts. Lord, we are here, gathered as your people, around your word. And we ask, Lord, that you teach us this morning. Help us to understand your word and apply it. And help us to be faithful in um, being doers of the word and not just hearers. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the text is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, and I'd just like to read it over. Wives, submit to your husbands, sorry, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So to set up the, um, the image of what this passage is about, I want you to think back of in um, John the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Here we have a particular feast. Uh, It's called the Feast of Passover. And Jesus and the disciples have um, gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And this feast is the feast that occurs just before Jesus is crucified. So this is where we are in chapter 13. This is the feast where Jesus turns into the Lord's Supper. So he takes something that the Jews have been celebrating for a long time and he transforms it into something new. And what happens during this feast, what happens during the supper, is that Jesus gets up and he just starts washing the disciples' feet. He puts aside his outer clothes. It's 
kind of like takes his shirt off, making sure his outer clothes don't get dirty. He ties a towel around his waist, grabs a bowl, puts some water in there, sat down at the disciples' feet, and just washed them and dried them with a towel. And this was the custom. This is what happened because people did not have enclosed shoes or people didn't have showers like we do today. They would have walked around in sandals, their feet would have gotten dirty. And they would have required this kind of washing every day. But in this kind of circumstance, if you would have hired a room, you probably would have hired a foot washer with the room. And so someone else would have washed your feet for you. But instead, in this circumstance, they didn't have one. Quite possibly, and this is what I believe, Jesus planned it this way because he had to demonstrate something really important to the disciples. Jesus just gets down on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. And he goes to them one by one and he gets to Peter. And he goes to wash Peter's feet. And Peter questioned him, saying, Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, Well, what I'm doing here, you're not going to understand. But later you will. It's like saying, There's no point even talking about it because if I explain it to you, you're just not going to get it. Later you'll get it. You'll see the big picture of what I'm doing in this little act of kindness. And then Peter blurts out, because he just doesn't get it, you'll never wash my feet. You don't understand Jesus. And maybe in his head he's thinking that it's pretty strange for a teacher to wash a student's feet. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Because he knows that on the road to Jerusalem, his disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to rank the top. In fact, a couple of them, and I think from memory, they got their mum to ask Jesus. For one to sit, I believe it's James and John, the sons of thunder, one to sit on Jesus' right hand, one to sit on his left. That, that's how pedantic they were about their rank. Who's greater? That's what they were arguing. And so what does Jesus do? He does something completely opposite. He humbles himself. And in all that room, though he is the teacher, and though they should have hired someone of very low rank to wash their feet, he goes and assumes that position and becomes the lowest one in the room. He shows them what it truly means to be the greatest. Jesus, the incarnate God, got down on his knees and washed the dirty feet of a bunch of proud-hearted, self-centered disciples who all they could do was argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Opposite extremes. And he does all this while on the brink of giving his life for them. That's where he's headed to Jerusalem, to give his life. And there he shows them what humility looks like.
And after the foot washing, Jesus commanded his disciples, saying that they also ought to wash one another's feet. And perhaps this may have occurred in a literal sense, but I think Jesus had a bit more of a deeper meaning to it. And the meaning is more to do with submission. That is, submitting to one another. Because in John chapter 13, verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's just stating an obvious fact. Got a teacher, student, won't be any greater than the teacher, etc. But here we see Jesus ranking the lowest, and he's saying, well, no one's going to be greater than their master. He's just flipped everything upside down. And the message that he's telling the, his disciples is that, look, you want true greatness, you submit to one another. While the disciples were arguing about who will rank higher, Jesus took it upon himself to rank lower. And this is what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom. This is what he was demonstrating. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This was his teaching, and as he washed the disciples' feet, this was his demonstration. In Luke 18, from verse 14, we read, For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the pattern in the kingdom. It's not a fight to the top. It's a fight to the bottom. It's upside down. And you might have heard the term upside down kingdom before. And now with this idea in mind, we come to Ephesians. We come to Ephesians 5.21. I'm going to take it back one verse because I think this is important to understand. It says here, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. And this is just a general submission for the church. To submit to one another. And how does this fit in with... Um, what I spoke about last time and what I'm going to speak about today. How does it fit in? Let me just refresh your memory a little bit. We know that Ephesians is divided into two sections. So chapters 1 to 3 focuses on our position, that is, who we are in Christ, while 4 to 6 focuses on our practice, how we ought to act in Christ. And from chapter 4... to about halfway through chapter 5, Paul mentions five walks. So walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. We've covered all of that. And towards the end of this section where Paul talks about walk in wisdom, he makes two really, really important things, really, really important points. Understand what the will of the Lord is 
and be filled with the Spirit. There are two things. It's really strong choices you can make. So walking in wisdom and making some strong choices is to understand what the will of the Lord is and be filled with the Spirit. And then there is, there are these three words which I've kind of... Um, um, we know... I framed it around three words, but in the text it talks about how we are to speak to one another in psalms and spiritual songs and so forth and sing, making melody to the Lord. We are to be thankful always for everything and then we come up to this point. We are to be submissive, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And while it ends with submission, this is a really, really good starting point for our next Next passage, which has a very specific look. So we move from the general to the specific, and the specific are about wives and husbands. And so, two main points that I want to flesh out today. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Oh, by the way, I think I'll um, just quickly mention it here in passing. When we get to verse 22, the little translation simply says this, Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we know the word submit isn't there, but we know verse 21 opens up conversation for submission. And we know that later on, um, it says in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we understand that this is what it means. However, in this day and age, we also know that this submission has been under a lot of scrutiny. And thankfully for scholars such as Claire Smith, who's uh, the author of God's Good Design. Claire Smith, um, before becoming a Christian, she was a feminist. Um, and now she writes a lot of um, Christian literature in response to feminism. Um, she's written some interesting information that can help us understand what it truly means to be submissive and what it truly means to be loving. And what she says is she says this. Patriarchy says womanhood is a march. So patriarchy is a term that's been um, popularised, well, this particular ideology has been popularised by feminists, where the pa patriarchy is seen as a march. And Claire Smith doesn't, doesn't disagree with that, because it sometimes is. The husband beats the drum, boom, 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 and the wife goes and marches to all the orders. And that's patriarchy. Patriarchy says womanhood is a march. Feminism says womanhood is a race. So in contrast to the march, 
In contrast to marching to the beat of the drum, the woman says, you know what, I'm going to compete. I'm going to outrun my husband. But the Bible says womanhood is a dance. It's neither a march, it's neither a race, but it's a dance. And this, I think, is the best way to put it. A dance. So with that image in your mind, think about submission as being part of a dance. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So this dance, it's sort of like the husband takes the lead in the dance and the wife follows. They are mutual in their worth and in their dance. And what I want to do in the text, we get two words. We get the word submit and we get the word head, which um, were two words that were hotly contested in the past 30 to 40 years in um, Christian circles. The word submit just simply means to place under or to rank under. It's, it's a military term. And the word head, well, simply means head as in the head of a human or an animal. And the reason why this was hotly debated was because around about 35 to 40 years ago, Christian feminists had a look at this word and they decided that it doesn't mean head as we understand it, it means source. So, as the church, Christ is the source of the church, so the husband is the source of the woman. That is, in the, when God created man and woman, woman come from the side of man. That is the source. And that's what they were arguing. But we had a... Um, there is a scholar by the name of Wayne Grudem who done an extensive study on this and looked at the word head in all its uses, both in... Um, religious and secular uses and discovered that nowhere in the history of, of um, the classical Greek was it ever used to mean a source. So that argument was dismissed and a lot of lexicons were changed back to meaning a head. Which um, at times, not only is it the head of a human or an animal, but sometimes it's used figuratively to mean a point or a tip, like the tip of a pencil, or the end of something, okay? So, or the top, okay? Never meant to mean source. And I think um, the reason why we see here, submit to your own husbands, is this. Back in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 16, um, well, in, the, in Genesis, we know God, in chapter 3, we know God approaches the serpent 
and dishes out some curses to the serpent, to the woman, to the man, and so forth. Because of the choices that they've made. And to the woman, there's a certain part of it that he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And what that means is, because of the fall, there's going to be tension in marriage. And it looks a bit like this. That the wife's desire will be contrary to her husband, but he shall rule over you. And both the desire to be contrary to the husband and the rule don't go together. Don't go together really well. Because for the husband, it's not a rule. Husband was never given the authority to rule. Husband was never given the authority to beat the drum and tell the wife, go and march. Follow my orders. That's not leadership. That's not submissive. That's subservient. That's more like a slave. And so this is the tension ever since the fall. And so what Paul does here is he addresses this tension and he says, well, do the opposite to being contrary to your husband. Submit. Don't defy your husband. And he says, later on we'll explain, we'll go into this in a little more detail, to the husband... You can't force your wife to submit. It's not a rule. You don't rule her. Um, otherwise, you know, the marriage will look like a bit like a husband will be a bit of a despot. So. The submission is just one aspect of a dance. Both wife and husband are equal in worth, but they have different roles and responsibilities. Just like in a dance, the two partners have different roles and responsibilities. Submission is never forced. So how does the husband take the lead? And we get to our next point, by loving his wife. Husbands demonstrate their love for their wife in the same way that Christ gave himself up for the church. Simply says here from verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now think back to the foot washing in John 13 and what Jesus did. And that foot washing is a bit of a prequel to what Christ did on the cross. 
Christ demonstrated his love by giving himself up. He gave up everything, even his rank. He gave up his throne in heaven. Came down to earth to die on a cross, to die as a criminal. And he did that to sanctify the church, to sanctify us, to make us holy, to clean us, to wash us from our sins, so that he can present to himself with splendor. He'll present us to himself with splendor, spotless and without wrinkle, holy and blameless. That's what Christ did. And that's the picture that we are given on how husbands are to love their wives. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that gives up everything. And husbands, this is how you ought to love your wives. It's a giving up of self. It's a giving up of rank. It's a fight for the bottom. It's not a beating of a drum. It's not a race. Paul puts it another way. He says, look after your wife in the same way you look after yourself. It's what Christ does for his church. Very clear, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It's quite simple. How you look after yourself, that's how you look after your wife. You take care of her the same way you take care of yourself. And then further he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Two become one flesh. How profound is that? That the two become one. And so if you are looking after yourself, you're looking after for the other as well. You can't have any self-centeredness in marriage. You've been made one with your wife. Look after your wife as yourself. So, in general, submission is mutual for all believers. It's how we get to be great in the kingdom of God. So, submitting to one another applies to all of us. But being a little more specifically, within marriage, 
we can have this same greatness too. And it's responding to the curse. So we're not going to rule or be defiant. We're going to give up within marriage. Give up of ourselves. And wives are to submit to the husbands in the same way they submit to the Lord. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Count as the curse in Genesis 3.16. It's a better way to live. It counters the patriarchy, the rule of the husband, and it counters the race of feminism. Now, to finish off, I'd just like to read an interesting quote. It's from a book called The Meaning of Marriage. It's by Tim Keller. He states this. In sharp contrast with our culture... The Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is more fundamentally action than emotion. But in taking this away, there is a danger of falling into the opposite error that characterised many ancient and traditional societies. It is possible to see marriage as merely a social transaction, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life. And so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interest. By contrast, contemporary Western societies make the individual's happiness the ultimate value. And so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that ultimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. Let's all bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are truly blessed that you've given us such a wonderful example of being a servant and demonstrating submissiveness. We know, Lord, that you were submissive to the plan of dying for us on that cross. And we are truly grateful for that which you've done. And you've given us an example time and time again of what this looks like in life. For example, the washing of the disciples' feet. Help us, Lord, not to outrank each other, but to humble ourselves and to submit to one another, to rank under each other as a church. Help us within marriage to fulfill our roles serving one another as best as we can in submission and love. For that is your design and your plan for marriage. 
That's what it was from the beginning. And we understand, Lord, that sin entered into this world and sin has other plans. Sin plans to be defiant. Sin plans to rule. Sin turned marriage into a march or marriage into a race. Sin turns marriage or husbandry into patriarchy. Sin turns femininity into feminism. And Lord, we know that this, this is not your plan. And we wish to move away from the world's plan and cling to yours. Because we know yours is a better way. For you are the way, the truth and the life. Help us to apply this in our daily walk and help us to edify one another. In your name we pray. Amen.